0: BFBS Radio 2. Sit Rep with Christopher Lee. Hello there, Richard Hutchinson. Thank you very much. I am Christopher Lee and you, you are welcome to the 1000th and 92nd edition of the Sit Rep Round Table. For 20 years, your weekly defence magazine from BFBS Radio 2. This is the last of the old style Sit Rep Round Tables. Now more of the new style when we get to the end. And with me is some who have been here since the start. John Dickey, the former Daily Mail's diplomatic correspondent. Dr. Martin McCauley from University College London, Hajir Tamorian from the Limehouse Group of Analysts, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson, also Professor Eric Grove of the University of Salford, who I think, Eric, did his first broadcast with us when he was at Dartmouth. Just afterwards, I Not as a cadet, I hate no, to no, add. No, no, think. Uh, and also here the director of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark, the first academic rather than military director of that place. Uh, Today we're going to do what we've been doing successfully for the past 20 years, predicting the future, predicting the future. Why not? We've got a good track record. We predicted the Iraq invasion of Kuwait that led to Gulf War I three months before it happened in March 1998. March 1998 we said why Tony Blair would one day try to depose Saddam Hussein. Yeah, 1998. And then in 2002, we said it would happen in 2003. Now, we could go on, and normally, of course, we do. But today, forget the past, we look to the future. That means we'll be thinking aloud about a world in which you'll be thinking about for the rest of your military career, and so will those who follow. Smarter in a brave new world, or on the sidelines of a more dangerous place? Good at bearskins and flags, or... Where it all began, hiring out to other countries, and a few back in the UK just in case we look good for the plucking, plucking that is. But before we look at our vision of the 2020 world, a couple of quick thoughts on this one. Uh, Mike Clark, the world of TB, or as, as commoners call him. Um, Tony Blair, his book out uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. He said, the Queen's haughty, Princess Diana's manipulative, Iraq no uh, regrets, and apparently didn't like anybody. Lots of spitefulness. That's the world we live in, isn't
1: it? Uh, he was he also, I mean, talking about the future, he was the man who said, I never make predictions, and I never will. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make it up, could you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his, his, uh, his memoirs are in the fashion now, for the, that when politicians retire, they rush to the publisher. I was just thinking, before we started, the, the, this all started back in the late 60s early 70s, with the Crossman diaries. And then Dick Crossman produces diaries of what had happened in Cabinet, and that was Mm. regarded as pretty shocking at the time. And before that, you've got to go back to people like Herbert Morrison in the 1950s, talking rather generally about the types of things they discussed in He cabin. who built the first dome. Absolutely. Yeah. Herbert Morrison. And, and the, the interesting thing is that now uh, it's all part of the political it's a political weapon to write your memoirs, self-serving, tawdry, shabby, get your own back. And I, I th- it doesn't reflect at all well on our politicians. And I can't think of any political memoirs that I've read in the last five years. Uh, they're all full of gossip, of course they are. They're quite interesting to read, but none of the main protagonists emerge with credit from them, in my own uh, view.
2: One That's, of the reasons for that is right. there's no ideology more in politics, so therefore it's a stream of consciousness. If we you, have to live in this world. If you read Tony Blair's, it's, it's like he just starts talking, as if you're talking to a mm-hmm. tape recorder, and you keep on going, and, going, and there's basically no analysis. Uh... And uh, you can't get to the inner self, the inner, the inner uh, Tony Blair. Sure,
0: did you did you get to the inner self, um,
3: I think you were wrong, first of all, to say he doesn't like anybody. He, he loves Chamberlain as a man, as a. Well, he's dead. Uh, yeah, he says... He yeah, says Tony Likes in, the Dead. In, in oh, quiet. that makes it 500 in his, in his three wars. My awards. opinion, Tony Blair has doubled,
4: by <laughs> the way, as a result oh, yes. of this.
3: Yes. <laughs> yes, he, says, he says in quiet moments he used to, to go in the long drawing... Which Chamberlain are you talking Neville? about? Never Chamberlain. Neville, not Austen. My hero, read, yes. read his private diaries and discover what an ethical great man he was after the
4: f- First right, World Eric War. Eric Grove. Well, as a, as a great Neville Chamberlain fan, and I'm no fan of Tony Blair's, my opinion of Tony Blair has indeed improved because he does appear to have at least got something of the essence. Of well, Pura, he's picked up of Pura something Pura from Neville. Your... Well, no, no, he's picked up something from the diaries, and those diaries ought to be in the National yes. Archives if they're as interesting as that <laughs> and, the, and as significant as that. Um, now, I, th- I, think, I think that, you know, as, as has been said, this is a pretty typical modern memoir. You can pick up interesting things from it. I might even buy it at least at half price, and it might shed some light on what has happened in the last few years.
0: Give it a month. It'll be
4: but remained written something like,
5: where I sort of said I actually hated uh, my number two I Gordon Brown, but hadn't managed to summon up the courage to get rid of him in 13 years, I think I feel rather ashamed
0: of it. Yes, something. I mean, when you did, I mean, quite frankly when you did your book uh, No Picnic, Yes. Um, you didn't hate anybody in that, did you? No. Well, if you did, you didn't tell us. No, <laughs> no. No. Didn't need anybody. No. Exactly. No. no. Mm-hmm. Too much going on. John, Dickey, I mean, you've written your own memoir of your time as diplomatic correspondent, including the boys on the Bongo bus. On the Bongo mm-hmm. bus. Well, what disappointed
6: me about Blair was it was like Edith Piaf, Je was uh, <laughs> without the lovely voice. And, uh, one expected and at least a justification of the legality of the war, and he failed to do that. I mean, it's still not explained how the Attorney-General, who had been told by the Foreign Office lawyers there was no real legal justification, he went to Washington, came back and said there is legal justification. Nobody has yet explained what he had in Washington that convinced him that there was legal justification. Okay, that's TB
0: done for. Let's move on, because we've got to get through this programme of predictions not looking back on a brilliant career. Um, Some say. (laughs) Monkey. Monkey. Or uh, Al Reed used to say, right, Monkey. (laughs) Now, Afghanistan, where are we going to be, uh, Mike, in um, 10 years from now?
1: Still in Afghanistan, that's for sure. Uh, the Western uh, countries will still find they should be involved in Afghanistan, although pr- uh, one hopes not in a combat role. So the present policy is, yes, combat operations until about 2015, and a different role after that. The only, uh, the only alternative scenario is that the whole thing is judged a failure before then, right. and there is a complete retreat. But I think that's unlikely. And, and there are some pretty encouraging signs, as well as some dubious ones in Afghanistan, but the news is not at all all bad. I agree some- with With Michael, will be there, but I think in a very different way. And I think the key to it was the
5: the recent announcement that the special forces have been targeting Taliban leaders and will be there in a much more, and it's a bad word to use, surgical way, from small bases, not out in the countryside. Most of the countryside work will be done by the Afghan army and police, I think.
2: Right. Martin McCall, I think in 10 years' time, Afghanistan would be ruled, taken over by Pakistan and China. China will develop it uh, as a bulwark against India, how will the they do it, though? I mean, they won't physically move in. They're doing it uh, at present. Uh, they engage in a copper mine, and they want to have pipelines from Central Asia through to Pakistan, in, in India, and then to China. It hasn't so. appeared
4: in the Western press, but there's quite a considerable Chinese presence in northern Kashmir now, isn't there?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I, uh, and the Chinese are very, very clever at present. They avoid any commitment which is not economic, uh, and the ISI, the Pakistani ISI, will run the Taliban, and the ambassador,
0: the Taliban ambassador in London, will in fact be nominated <laughs> Hang on by John ISA. Dickey, diplomatic correspondent, <laughs> excellence. Uh, a Taliban. Now I laugh at that, but consider the countries that actually have turned up former yeah. insurgents.
6: But the best you can hope for, I think, is to go to uh, an embassy like the Libyan embassy, uh, as happened with the Portuguese when they were. Uh, struggling for independence in, in what was then Portuguese Guinea, and it set up a, a diplomatic unit uh, in the uh, Libyan embassy, and it
0: was a very successful operation. So uh, that would be like a Libyan int- or a port- uh, Taliban interest department. Yes, that's
6: right. It's a very useful uh, device to to get access to uh, all the parties that are concerned with uh, reaching. We settlement. had
0: that during the Falklands uh, conflict, didn't we? With the Swiss looked after our Swiss interests. Ter- that's right. That's we right, had the British interest yes. department in the Swiss. Mm-hmm. Haji uh, in ten years' time?
3: Yes. I think that if the West, out of despair were to give a signal to the Pakistanis, all right, go and take over Kabul again and impose your former clients, the Taliban, on top. We will go back to the old days of the civil war, the Northern Alliance, because in 10 years' time, the enemy will, will not be the Taliban, but the, the need to nation-build in a country which has been not ever built as a nation. There's so many various nationalities still suspicious of one another. So for our own security, we will have to be there... And if we vacate the place, then um, people like Al-Qaeda will, k- will charge back on their white charges. Okay.
0: Or their black charges, whichever uh, horses they have. Mike, can I just recap on this? Afghanistan, 10, 15 years' time, in other words, the career of an average soldier. Uh, we're still there, but in a different role.
1: Yes, I think that's almost certainly true, but not in the same sort of numbers. The plan is, of course, I mean, we've got 9,000 troops there now, that we, it, might, it will come down to a contribution to a training and overwatch force, and our contribution to that could be uh, anything from one battle group level down to a, a company. Um, but I think for a, a young soldier uh, joining now, they will, in the army certainly, they'll do one or two tours there before 2015, and they'll probably do a couple of tours there afterwards.
4: Plus right. some air
6: power. But I, I think it would be kept to a minimum. I think that's one thing uh, Prime Minister Cameron is emphatic about. Come the date of uh, yes. 2015, uh, the combat troops will and come he can make out. That stick and John. For, for economic as well as other reasons, he's not going to get a depends, large commitment there.
4: It all depends what you mean by combat troops, of course. I mean, in the mm-hmm. sense, I mean, ground forces, yes. But as, but as, mm-hmm. as i just said, mm-hmm. aircraft, special forces, these things can be kept with a, a minimal signature shall we say and they could be extremely important in helping the Afghan the government okay. that we approve of. Can we on. try
0: this, on, this thing, uh, on Iraq now because Iraq is going to go through the different stages of government, getting a government that uh, that actually works whatever at the moment if i'm right uh, our presence in or around Iraq is largely navy mike
1: Yes, there is. I mean, the, the Americans... But in the rest of the Gulf, maybe... Our presence is, is overwhelmingly Navy. We've got okay. no other troops there officially uh, at all. Servicemen,
4: please. Sailors are not troops. Sorry. All
1: right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Service personnel, <yes. laughs> Yeah.
0: Okay. So, um, Eric, the Navy in the Gulf, generally... Yep.
4: Uh, training job, training yes, training training the Iraqi Navy, which seems to be going quite well. Also having having a presence there to help defend the offshore oil rigs because the Iraqis can't can't do it themselves. And uh, this really, I think, is the kind of pattern perhaps that we might look for in the future after the you know uh, after the um, uh, the current review, having a sort of a minimal footprint ashore, but doing significant and important things that we are very good at doing in a sort of minimalist kind of way, but, but nonetheless very importantly. I mean, uh, what people Julian. forget
5: is that uh, some of the air power in Afghanistan, the f eighteen, the US Navy F-18s, are actually flown off from carriers. they carrier base, exactly carrier right. base yeah. You don't need to have an air
0: uh, Just stick to the Gulf for uh, 20 seconds, Julian. Uh, there are other places like the Yemen, aren't there? Yes, Indeed. Um,
5: indeed there are, and and the Yemen, of course,
0: and Somaliland are getting very much involved, or
5: likely to get involved, in piracy.
0: So we are going to be still in that area in 15, 20 years' time in a significant way, if not in significant numbers. I'm sure we will be,
5: because, in fact, that's where our oil comes from. It's a very, very important part of the world for us. When
2: when the Americans get out of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, which they will do, uh, the next place they will go into is Yemen, because it's critical for Saudi Arabia who can't really defend themselves against al-Qaeda. Well, either. the
0: Americans are in Yemen anyway, aren't they? No, no, they're really big. They, they okay. are there
2: now, but they, uh, that's the next place because the United States is a warrior nation and that's, that's where they're going to go
0: next. John Dickey, Cyprus. we Are going to be there 10, 15 mm-hmm. years' time? Um, I suspect so.
6: I mean, at the moment, uh, Alistair, Alexander Downer, the former Australian former, who's was the UN envoys... With a the good them, reputation. ...urged them to intensify their talks. They're going to meet three times a week, but... Really, I suspect that uh, there'll still be one infantry battalion in Episcopi, another in uh, Dekilia. The only thing that could change it was if there were to be a settlement. I mean, there's pressure to get something done by the end of the year, but I don't see it happening. But if it were to happen, we would pull back from Dekilia and concentrate in Episcopi. There you've got the RAF, you've got a naval patrol... And, and two battalions, plus uh, good uh, admin staff. They'll be there for a long while. So very nice posting. I'm sure people got... BFS love well, it. Given we what we just
1: said about if, if we continue to have military interests in the Gulf, Cyprus is mm. a very useful base to have for logistical and all sorts of other things Although reasons.
4: there has been talk of running it down. Of
1: oh, course, that? yes. Yeah. But, but, but for as long as we want to hop in a and place? out of the Gulf and do all sorts mm. of useful things from Cyprus, it suits mm. us to have some sort of base there.
0: Julian, a good place to be, walk people in, get people out?
5: Mm. Yes, it is uh, a good place. The only problem about Cyprus is it hasn't got a decent harbour or port. That's yeah. always
4: the problem, isn't it? That was not it thats always a problem, mm-hmm. but it's
0: got a good airfield.
4: We yeah. took Alexandria shortly after we took Cyprus, and therefore there wasn't the same incentive to okay. do that can I
0: there. Can I just have a whip round at some of the other places, like Falklands, Brunei, Northern Ireland... Uh, Falklands, Julian, uh, oil and water do mix after all.
5: Mm. Yes, they do, and, and I'm sure we'll uh, maintain a presence mm. there, <laughs> so long as the population of the Falklands wants to remain part of, uh, of Britain.
0: Yeah, so far, we, it, it's, it's changing in emphasis in numbers, but we're still there in, in mm. every way we've touched so far. Northern Ireland, uh, Martin, Northern Ireland's the, a tricky the, one. The
2: troubling thing is that Sinn Féin is losing influence. That's why the, mm. the new uh, mm. groups... In fact, now become influential. now they appear to be recruiting former real IRA or IRA uh, people. And uh, what they're doing is basically what the IRA did before. So that's very troubling. And uh, apparently some Sinn Féin councillors, when they go to certain trouble areas, they're told to get lost, which is very, very serious, because if that continues, then mm. you, you'll have a spiral of violence. Mm.
0: I was looking at the German um, Defence uh, Review, or some of the outlines of the German Defence Review, what struck me was it's absolutely drastic as a defence review. And, uh, Martin, it's, also, it's almost as if countries are starting in Europe, continental Europe, are becoming nationalistic. They can't afford a big... Uh, uh, to, Gem- to take Gem- part in everybody else's idea uh, of what Gem- defence Gem- should Germany
2: exports. Germany's future is exporting. That's why they're successful at present and they must continue exporting. Mm-hmm. Domestic markets saturated. And how do you save money? Where do you get money from for social problems? Solve social problems. You do it by running down defence. And the social democrats are pacifists. And the social democrats could form the next uh, government or coalition. Uh, and even the Christian democrats now they're not as belligerent as they used to be and they will run down Afghanistan. And basically they say, oh, we don't really have any enemies. They're talking about mm-hmm. putting Russia in NATO and we don't have any enemies in Europe. So therefore, why should we spend so much on defence?
0: Mike, mm. if, we, um, if we get the thought of uh, strategic defence and security review some might expect where are we going to be in germany because you
1: mm. it uh, that's the point that that uh, we talk about we you know we have interest in staying in all sorts of places we don't really have any interest in mm. having forces based in europe parking I'll, lot I'll, it is it's it's where the heavy metal sits and it's easier for it to sit there but if you're looking to draw in then there is there's no rationale for no, no sensible rationale for keeping large numbers of forces in continental Europe. But that that of course has some symbolic sense; uh, uh, is part of our commitment uh, to NATO. But I think, as Martin says, uh, you know, NATO is just sort of wearing off. It will continue to exist, but as a military alliance, it's not actually going anywhere at the moment. And uh, I think defence in Europe is becoming a series of of bilateral national decisions. You know, decisions discussed. Bilaterally, and I think NATO is becoming a sort of an in, a forum for intensive bilateralism. It's not a multilateral forum anymore of any real significance.
4: But even in and that context, actually, the obvious people who want to supply tanks say to the alliance are the Germans, who, as we know, are quite good at armored warfare. Mm. Uh, the, the French, the Dutch, the Poles—in fact, with proper equipment this time—and it would seem that it would seem that uh, actually, if we are going to have a division of labour, which the government is talking about mm. in, in, in quite a constructive kind of way, the people who provide the Heavy metal should be the mainland Europeans, entirely appropriate.
0: But well, we're not going to have loads of tanks, are we? No, we, we? won't.
1: No. That, I yeah. mean, one of the things that we're fairly certain about is that the Strategic Defence Review will cut back the number of tanks, to 300 Where are we odd... going to
0: put them, by the way? <laughs> Apart from, we used to have a thing about three or four years ago, somebody suggested all the tanks would come back to the UK be on the 303 and lay with police aware signs on them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is. Where do you book them when after you come the, back? Or do you sell the them on fir- the way
4: back? After the First World War, they gave a lot of tanks to towns to put on display. They eventually had to be scrapped after about ten years. We, but it's we, quite a good
1: military memorial. Okay. We certainly won't be bringing 150 tanks back to the UK to scrap them in the UK, that's no, for sure.
0: No, no, no. no. We give some of these good prices. Give them to the polls, exactly. But to replace their Soviet I think stuff. Much, of, I mean, much of our defence <laughs> and foreign policy thinking has been, and will continue to be the United States, weren't it? Um, so which way goes America is to some extent which way we have to think on the line from University of Southern Utah where he is Professor of Political Science and International Relations, Dr. Michael Stathis. Michael, um, you're teaching American foreign policy this uh, semester. Um, uh, trends and intentions of American policy?
7: First of all, it's a great pleasure and honor to be with all of you, especially you, Christopher. One thing that is, is coming up Listen, very clear is that <laughs> the consequences of poor foreign policy choices do not stay overseas. They come home to roost. And now that the combat phase of the war in Iraq seems to be over, we're really going to see enormous focus on domestic effects, especially as it uh, affects the economy. The
0: um. One gets the impression that America has learned, as you you're suggesting, that that certainly in Iraq and Afghanistan that being big isn't enough, is it?
7: Oh no! And it's the it's the old line, uh, whether you want to call it the arrogance of power or, if you prefer, uh, the imperial temptation. Uh, and uh, it is it has been a lesson learned in Iraq. It's being learned in Afghanistan. It was learned in Vietnam that just because you are the surviving superpower you cannot always have your way
0: yeah i was um, listening to what um the um defense secretary um gates said yesterday that he had to accept that lot not a lot of america thinks the rationale for going to iraq was a good idea does that suggest that in future likely uh, interventions uh, people are going to have big second thoughts about anything going, uh, and therefore isolation comes up on the cards.
7: Well, I, I think there are two things here. One, there's going to be a very definite tendency to be far more economical in the general <laughs> sense and in the economic sense uh, to avoid interventions that are not absolutely necessary, and that can be defined a number of different ways, but I think there's going to be greater care and concern in how and when the United States does become involved. It, it's not going to be anything uh, akin to um, what we have what we have called. Um, this sense of isolationism, although Pat Buchanan and a few others are still hanging on to that idea. The United States is a global uh, player, and that's not going to change.
0: Right. Um, Michael, just just a a sort of final thought. Your students, uh, uh, undergraduate and graduate students, uh, what do they want? Do you get a sense of what they want America to be in, or what they want to be in, say, 10, 15 years from now?
7: Well... Hopefully, we talked about this the first day of class, oddly enough, and what has come out is that hopefully 10 to 15 years down the road, we will not be talking about the United States in the context of the paradigm of imperial decline, but hopefully, again, uh, we will be talking about an America that has reinvented itself, renewed its status in the world, but done it in a way with positive impact uh, on the global level.
0: Right. Michael Stathis, as it always has been. Thank you very much indeed for joining us.
7: My friend, you shall be missed.
0: (laughs) Right. Thank you. Um, Michael Stathis is making point here, isn't he, Um, uh, Michael Clark? His uh, graduate students mainly are saying uh, exactly where they want America to be. We have to rely on our strategic defense initiative uh, um, or, uh, or review to actually tell us that.
1: Yes. We, I mean, th- there hasn't been much of a debate in the United Kingdom about what sort of power we want to be. That, uh, the official line for the last 18 months has, has been that this defence review will have to decide what sort of power we want to be. We, we as a country will have to decide but how much it. But shouldn't it be round the other way? Well, the idea was that this has got to be a democratic decision. The country's got to decide, is it prepared to pay for a global role? But actually, we haven't been having that discussion. And we, we've slipped from the big stuff that was in the Green Paper in February, which is all the motherhood and apple pie statements, which mm-hmm. have got to be made. That's fine. And we've slipped from that immediately now into the weeds of, of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a bit, little bit of salami slicing. And all the area in the middle, the really strategic choices, as far as we can tell, are not really being made. And this, this defence review, I, I hope to be wrong about this in three or four weeks' time, but this defence review seems to be slipping, as it were, from the very big stuff, which is hard to really get hold of, down to the the, the accountant's sort of defence review. It was ever thus, of course. Well, um, but we hope that this time be different, and well, so I mean, far it, it doesn't look it, as if it is. Hope springs eternal, but it, it never depends, is fulfilled.
2: It all depends on the economy. If you get a double depreciation,
0: then there'll be less and less money, and uh, you will in fact... But not that's a dumb way of doing a defence review. Mm. Yes. A defence review is, or should be, a government saying, listen, we're in power at the moment, we're going to tell you where we think Britain ought to be in the out years, let's say 20 or 30 years' time. You then give that to the people that have got to implement your uh, foreign policy and say... Tell me how you would implement that and what equipment you need. That, Michael's saying, is not happening. Wait, uh, John, can... hang on, John. The, the
6: difficulty, in my view, is that nobody at the Foreign Office of m knows exactly what sort of world they will be coping with in 10, 15, 20 years' time. In particular, what concerns me now is not so much the Israel-Palestine confrontation, but what's going to happen to the two main autocracies in the Middle East. In Saudi Arabia, you have King Abdullah, aged 86... His uh, um, next uh, in line is one year younger and is not in in good health. Down the line, it's all done by brothers in the Al Saud regime. There are 18 brothers. And and Nayef is is 77, but he's been minister of interior for the last 37 years. Now, if the Islamist radicals get a foothold there, it will change the whole sort of attitude that we have to take to the Middle East. Equally the same in Cairo, where President Mubarak is 82, uh, frail, he's trying to arrange for his son, Gamal, to take over. But again, you have an upsurge of the Muslim Brotherhood there. So the whole complex issue of the Middle East may totally changed the sort of world in which we're preparing (laughs) to to analyse in military terms.
2: And that will bring the American military in again. They will see that as a great mission, because no president could really stand aside from that. Not even Obama could say... Well, there's 20% uh, of the world's oil in in Saudi Arabia. That's
4: right. But the Americans are now in the position that we were in, I think, in the 1890s and the early 1900s. At a peak we didn't of have power. any oil then. No, but nonetheless, but we were beginning to get it, but interested in it. But the basic point is this. America, I'm afraid is going to be in decline in the 21st century, not because it would get any weaker itself, but because the other countries are going to, are going to get more powerful. India, India China, and China, India, exactly.
0: China. Who was talking India, China? <laughs> Martin, chi- he's good chi- at this.
2: Chi- China, in fact, uh, maybe it's the second largest economy now, but per capita, I think the number one, place 126. So therefore, mm, there's a middle, class, a middle class of over 100 million. And if it Out of were, a population of uh, 1.3 billion. So it's yeah. 1 in 13 is the middle class. And they think that by 2050, there will be 500 million in the middle class. And if that happens, then China becomes a stable country like the rest of us. China of at present cannot fall out with the United States, cannot fall out with the West. Its, it's, uh, its economy is, uh, is symbiotic, it's integrated and so on. The only threat from China is to India uh, and a conflict in the Himalayas with, with Tibetis and so on. But they will work with Pakistan to encircle India. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
3: tell me something uh, uh, just just before we move on one one, uh, Chinese general has officially openly said that we need the um, oil resources and gas resources of Central Asia to such an extent that I can see war between us and the Russians for the no
2: no no the Russians are losing out in Central Asia to China Russia is the economy, the Russian economy, is dependent on oil at present, but there are indications that the, uh, the Russian industrial economy is gradually developing. That will take 25 years. Therefore, they're in no position to. Greek yeah, but concerned. your Chinese
0: general, by the way, got sacked after saying that, and all he was doing was repeating <laughs> what Harrison Salisbury said 35 years ago. <laughs> right. Um, something which is new or should be new is the idea of cyber warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, where are we with this cyber warfare? And I'm not sure we even know what we mean by cyber
2: warfare. From the Chinese point of view, and they see themselves, they see the United States as their greatest competitor, and they don't believe they can compete, they can compete with them on the ground. Correct. Or on the Navy. They can't. They can't do that. The only place you can do it is in the space, and you knock out the satellites, you knock out communications, you uh, uh, muck up their uh, computers and so on. That's the only way you can... Mike, Knight... It. Uh, it uh, Knight a great equaliser, yes. that's
1: the point. Yeah. There's, there's it's so going there. to be cyber warfare can be the great equaliser.
0: Well, NATO is saying that it gets hit every every day of the week, almost,
1: certainly every week, the if practicing. somebody tries to get into it. Yeah, yes.
0: We're going to have a cyber warfare command, aren't we, in the United Kingdom?
1: Almost certainly, yes. Uh, I mean, we have a cyber policy now, which hasn't gone very far, but it's, it, it's really run from GCHQ because <laughs> they have all the expertise.
0: So you've got to put a two-star or something
1: like that in charge. Exactly, of it. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, we do have great expertise at GCHQ, which is some of the best in the world, and the policy is coordinated within the National Security Secretary and the cabinet office but when you look at what the policy requires we're not even at first base yet I mean our policy is that we've decided to have a policy we've, we've started to become more coherent in our thinking but the challenges are huge and there's only so much the government can do because a, a cyber policy that is a national cyber policy has to draw in industry and non-governmental organisations in a pretty big way so you, you're trying to pre- create a standard that will preserve uh, what the UK needs to preserve. And it's argued
4: this is something the RAF could take the lead in it is, has been argued. Right. You, I've heard you
0: say that but... you've got a contract with them. It's the no. second time. Not at all.
4: we've got one. It. Very and joint, joint I'm very joint these days. You know. Good <laughs> um, we've,
0: uh, we've got a minute, a minute and a half. Honestly, uh, I want to nip round twenty thirty. It's not that far away. It's only twenty years away. Um, who are who are going to be our new enemies? Well, the new enemy will
2: in fact be. Uh, a resurgent economic China uh, which will uh, in fact downgrade the European Union because the European Union will not be competitive so therefore people will become, if you like, more xenophobic. They will blame the Chinese. Europeans will blame
3: the Chinese for uh, their economic troubles. I remember saying to myself 30 years ago that uh islamist terrorism. Tell us thirty years in ahead, not thirty Is- years ago islamist terrorism was going to outshine the IRA. Okay. i r a okay whether that will get worse. okay
0: mike uh tell me uh, you've already mentioned nato sort of getting a bit wobbly mm. um the British services still three services in twenty years' time.
1: Probably. I mean, I think the Air Force can argue that it does have a strategic role to play. It hasn't had to play it very much uh, in recent years, but it does have a potential strategic role to play. So, yes, I think we'll have the three services, but they'll all be smaller. They will operate uh, much more jointly. and. If we've got it right, if we get it right, and I'm not sure we will, it will be a m- very transformational force.
0: OK, uh, we're a transformational force because we're going. That's it for this 20 years. Next week, KHO Bo will bring you a different version of Sitrep. but look back at the d- week's defence news. That's here on BFBS Radio 2 at 16.30 UK time and BFBS Radio 1 DAB at 18.30 UK time. For us, that's Michael Clark, Martin, uh, Martin McCauley, Eric, Eric Grove, Julian Thompson, Hirshad Tomorrow, and, of course, John Dickey. For me, Christopher Lee, that's it. We're off to the pub. Mary still in the hut, but she may be getting them in by now.
3: <laughs> Citra with Christopher Lee.